Hello everyone, welcome to Cosmos with a K by Cosmos School. We talk about the future of education with an emphasis on technology, entrepreneurship and virtual reality. My name is John and I'm a co-founder of Cosmos School. Cosmos School is a K-12 school that exists only in virtual reality. You can learn more about us on cosmosschool.com. Today's episode features a conversation with David Wind, co-founder of an education tech startup called PeerGrade. PeerGrade is a free online platform to facilitate peer feedback sessions with students. Check them out on peergrade.io. All right, let's dive right in. I'm here with David Wind from PeerGrade. Um, PeerGrade is a um, platform that helps students and teachers give each other peer feedback. Um, David is currently um, the co-founder and CEO of PeerGrade, um, doing it for a couple of years and they are located in Copenhagen, Denmark. Hi David. Hi, good to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. Cool. Um, so, you know, um, before you tell us more about yourself quickly and PeerGrade, so just the listeners know um, what PeerGrade is, for those who don't, um, so, um, could tell a little story about how we met. Um, so David and I met in San Francisco in the summer of 2017 when David was going through Y Combinator with PeerGrade. Um, uh, we met at the bar, had some beers and pizza, and kind of kind of hit it off. So we kept in touch, and David has been very helpful for us also with introductions to potential investors and other companies. So I'm happy to have David as the first guest on my on our podcast here. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So David, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, Pure Great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm David. I, I'm how old am I? 29. I live in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, a bit about myself. I I have a math degree. Um, I I started studying computer science, but I started coding as a as a kid. So I, I realized that I could study computer science, but I could learn most of it myself. But I really I was really bad at math, and I could spend my time in university learning math instead. So I switched to math. And then I, I studied that for five years. And then after that, I started a PhD in machine learning in Copenhagen. And after about six months or something, so I, I really liked teaching. So during my studies, I was a TA in 12 courses. So I really liked that. And when I started my PhD, the first thing I wanted to do was to teach a course. So I went to my supervisor and I said, hey, can I teach a course about big data or something cool, machine learning? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, you can. We kind of need a course about something, so so cook something up. And I made this course, called it Computational Tools for Data Analysis. Uh, Built a curriculum of some stuff like MapReduce and and stuff like that. And then I put it on our course base, and I expected like thirty students that that most people get, but I ended up getting a hundred and fifty uh, registrations for the course which made it the second biggest course in the department. And I think it was because, actually, I think the title had big data in it and people search for big data in the course database, apparently. So that was the trigger. And it was kind of cool. In the beginning, we had this big course I had to, to teach, but then you realize that 
the way we wanted to teach it was weekly exercises that you have to solve and hand in. But if I had 150 students, they would write about 10 pages each every week. You got to around a thousand pages a week to grade, which is about 40 hours of work. And you don't want to spend 40 hours of work a week grading, right? You're going to be completely insane. And students aren't really going to learn that much from reading your scribbles. So we kind of went back and said, okay, can we do something else? And all my colleagues just said, ah, just do multiple choice. That's the best. Uh, that scales very nicely. But it wasn't really in line with the way we wanted to teach. So I like these open-ended problems in my course. I like to challenge students a bit more and get them a bit more creative. So I, I'd taken a course on Coursera back in the day with some peer review in it. And I thought that was okay. Like I could probably do something better than that, but but that was a pretty smart solution. But I couldn't really use my Coursera for my own course. So I started building my own tool for, for peer review in my class. And that's what's PeerGrade today, right? So so PeerGrade is a tool where students can submit some work. It could be a video, could be a PDF report, like in my course. And then they read each other's work anonymously and give feedback to each other and maybe grade each other. And then the teacher can reallocate all that time that you save to something else. And as a student, you you learn a lot by reviewing. That's kind of the underlying uh, thing that makes peer grade interesting, right? Is that not only does it reallocate time, but it also gives you, it trains some higher order skills and it, it trains you in a different way when you have to review other people's work. So that's that's the the founding story of peer grade. Today, we're 12 people, seven of us are in Copenhagen, and then a few people scattered around the world. We've uh, been through our company, as you said, raised some money from some different investors. And yeah, it's, it's, it's gone far from where we started. In the early days, it was just universities. Today, it's also schools and corporates and other places that use PeerGrade. Um, so it's, it's been quite a ride. Cool. Um, how many schools and or universities use peer grades? Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a bit hard to estimate because we don't really ask them where they're from. But my best estimate is looking at the email domains of our users. So my best guess is that we have around six to 7,000 institutions with, with users in them, uh, which is uh, quite crazy um, to think about. And not all of those are active, but a good a good chunk of them. And we've just seen that ever since we started, we've been doubling the amount of active users almost every six months, which is a kind of a nice rate of, of growth. So we hope to, to keep that going. That sounds amazing. Congrats. Thanks. So far. Um, um, just a quick question. Um, how was the... Why Combinator experience for you guys is an education startup because I know that you know Y Combinator um, doesn't take a lot of ad tech startups. Um, so was it a great experience for you guys? Yeah, so th there's two answers to that question, right? In general, YC is amazing. Like I would always do it again and any company should do it. Specifically being an ad tech startup in the summer months is uh, not super smart, right? So. We were in, in YC in June, July, and August, and there is a big class with summer schools vacation. Um, so when everybody else was running around every week saying they were growing by 15% or something, we were just like losing our customers day by day. And by 
a month into YC, we had no users left. They all came back after YC, but it was very demotivating when you want to focus on growth that all your customers are gone. And when we went to try to have meetings with schools, they would say, yeah, it sounds really cool. Uh, can we book the meeting in September? And we're like, no, no, no. Like we have to go to demo day in August. We have to be cool by August. But that doesn't really fit when people are on holiday. So we ended up actually, we paid teachers on Craigslist to come to our apartment and play with our product so we could learn something because we had to get feedback from somebody. Oh, that's a that's a great way of going about that, I guess. Um, so what would you say, what was the most, if you could pick, if you need to pick one thing, what was the most helpful thing of YC? It's a really good question and it's it's surprising to many, I think, the order of, of importance of things. For me, I have to pick one. Okay, I think the most important one is the network you get after YC. So most of the value from YC doesn't come during the acceleration months. It comes after afterwards. So for me, there was like, we have a forum internally in YC where we can communicate with each other. And I use that a lot. Um, it gives me a lot of value. Yeah, it's cool. Um, good. And um, yeah, that's what I also hear from other YC participants. Um, makes sense. The So my next question would be, when we were talking before, you said that some big changes are coming to peer grade in the next, uh, in the near future. And um, I thought that's super interesting. Could you quickly talk talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So we've been going for three years now with peer grade. And when we started peer grade, we were questioned by a lot of investors about like, is there really a market for this? Like, do teachers really want peer feedback? Can you really become a billion dollar business? That's the favorite question of the VC, right? <laughs> and we kind of came up with all these stories about, sure, we can. And, and I still think we can. I still think peer assessment and peer feedback is a billion dollar business. It's just that in the world today, we don't have to go and sell our customers a better peer feedback solution because they're not already doing peer feedback. We have to go and sell them a new way of teaching. And while that's a great thing to do, it is really slow. It takes a long time to convince somebody to change their university course. So a lot of, of our customers come and say, ah, it sounds really cool. Um, I'm going to use it next year when I teach in like 18 months. And that's not, that's not cool, right? We can't, we can't wait 18 months for a teacher to flip their course around. So what we saw is that peer feedback is a big business in 10 years. Today, it's a fine business. But in the meantime, we have to do more than that. And over the last years, we've collected feedback from our users, um, feedback from more than 10,000 people. And that feedback tells us a story that no single user formulates on their own but as an aggregate they kind of tell this similar story that they want a better tool for managing and running their courses that can do a few different things so what we're doing now is we're looking at like how can we take peer grade and how can we broaden it a little bit can we add other functionality that's similar to peer feedback like teacher feedback self-assessment um, and things like that because we already built a lot of that functionality today Peer grade is all about peer feedback. In six months, maybe 
peer grade is a bit more gener- generic and, and can do a, a few more things. Exactly what's going to happen, we don't know yet. It's still in the early days of this. Um, in one future, peer grade 2.0 or whatever we call it is just a better peer grade. In another future, it might be a, a different product altogether. But we're definitely starting to see that if we have to invent new things now, it doesn't necessarily make sense to invent more deep peer grade related features because the next person we get onto the product is not coming in because we added another functionality on top of peer grade. Okay. Um, well, that sounds sounds pretty pretty interesting, and and I also like the way you kind of like strategically think about you know growing the company. Um, um, makes sense to me at least <laughs> the way you tell it. So yeah, and it, it, I think it's it's also this idea. I think you actually mentioned that to me that like it's very very hard to go into a market with a very big product, right? Nobody can start out building a full learning system that can solve every problem right you have to start somewhere and what we did is we started with a small product like it's just pure grading in university classes and it's just for my own class by the way right so it's very very niche and i could get to a, a product market fit in some sense very quickly because this problem i was attacking was pretty small and then when i solve that and get closer to a good solution i can expand the problem a little bit and go to the next product market fit. And and that's kind of what we've been thinking about. Like if we came to the market with this incredibly large idea in the beginning, we would have drowned. We didn't know anything about selling. We didn't know anything about building a company. We didn't know anything about teaching. Like how do you build everything from the beginning? So it's kind of iterative in its approach, right? We build something small, we learn from it, we improve on it and we expand and then we keep doing that. And now we're in year three and now the steps are getting bigger and bigger, of course, but but it's still the same process that we've always had. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, it's pretty cool. Um, all right. Um, so let's you know talk a little bit about um, so the, the importance of I want to talk a little bit about the importance of collaboration, um, physical and geographical locations in education in general. So mm-hmm. this, can, this can be for, you know, um, primary and secondary education, but also for higher education. And, you know, we might even differentiate between those two. Um, so, you know, my first question in this direction would be, in general, you know, how important is collaboration in education and um, what, why? It's a very good question. Um, I think I see it as there's two there's two parts to that that importance, right? Of like the importance of collaboration. The first part for me is about you need to be able to collaborate in life, right? That's the thing you need to learn. Kids need to learn to collaborate. It's a it's a skill, right? And then there's like a a thing that comes out of that is also that when you collaborate you also train other skills, other social skills, like you train arguments, you train critical thinking, you train presentation skills, you train other skills when you interact in a collaborative way. So that's kind of the collaboration in itself. But then I also just think that, and that's kind of maybe tying also to the physicality of and location that 
when people collaborate, they seem to be happier, right? They seem to be more engaged. They seem to learn things better. And that's at least one of the foundations of peer grade is this idea that you learn a lot by teaching, right? It's maybe the most effective way to learn something is to teach it to another person. And the reason is many things, right? One of the reasons is you have to understand something well to teach it. But there's also some really cool research showing that if you take two groups of people and you tell both groups, hey, you have to give a presentation about this topic X. So you have to prepare before Monday. And then on Monday, just before they have to present, you tell group A, actually, you don't have to present after all. And group B has to go and actually make the presentation. And then you test them right after. Group B will be significantly better. So not just the act of preparation, for presentation is important, but also the act of presenting or teaching somebody improves your knowledge as well. So that's a thing that only is available in collaboration, right? So I think collaboration itself is important. It's a skill you need to train, but it's also it's able to train any other skill much better if you if you do it in a collaborative fashion. So I think collaboration is super important in education, and it's one of the things that's most complex and most uh, least understood at least and and it's probably where a lot of innovation will happen in the future i think cool um yeah i agree i mean um you know um my dad always used to say when when i was in high school he always used to say if you can't explain something you you didn't understand it so he would always ask me to explain stuff yeah, and there's some really cool <laughs> research on that on my desk actually about just like the act of explaining something to yourself. Like how much yeah. can you use that for? And it's really, really important, right? There's some, I think some people call it the rubber dark method. You have to tell it yeah. to your rubber dark. It's super effective. It's very, very hard to get kids to do it like seriously. But if you do it well, it, it's super, super effective. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. That, you know, that's also the reason I like, um, one of the reasons I like writing blog posts because sometimes you know i'm like oh, okay i want to write a blog post about this topic and then i started writing and i'm like shit you know what was i'm not sure how to how to write this down yeah. <laughs> so i have to go back and do some more research and actually helps me understand the topic better that's one of paul graham's um, uh, quotes i think about writing is that he that's the best way for him to think is to write so he doesn't really know anything about a topic but then he starts writing a blog post about it and when he's done he knows everything about that topic yeah, makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, if we come back to the topic of collaboration, so, you know, we can almost say that going forward in education, collaboration is almost like a fundament to to improve education. Like, we shouldn't teach people uh, in general without without them having to work together. Would you agree with that statement? I hope that's true, at least, right? There's always outliers and exceptions to every rule, right? There's very smart people like Elon Musk, for example, who gets most of his knowledge in the early days by going to the library and reading the books from one end to the other. And that kind of, that's very uncollaborative. So maybe it's not a, a hard necessity, but I think for our us mere mortals out here, I think it's a pretty stable thing to say that collaboration is important and i think it's also like if you if you look at the word lecture right like we do that in universities lecture means read 
And you did lecturing in the old days because you didn't have enough books for everybody. So one person would read the book aloud to the rest. And and that's okay. Like you still do that two, like a thousand years later, right? You still lecture in universities. So we haven't come that far, but maybe that's also because it's kind of good. Like it works partly, but I think we have opportunities to make it even better. Like I think we can go very far with the existing models, but I, I do think we can improve on them still though. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you look at, look at like a younger, um, younger humans, you know, primary and secondary education, um, there, I think, at least when I was in school, um, collaboration even was less than in college, you know, um, you didn't have a lot of group projects. Um, it was mostly just, um, like a unidirectional lecturing from the teacher and then you, you would do homework and have exams and that's basically it. Uh, I don't know. Was it also your experience in Denmark, or? Yeah, in Denmark we have uh, we have the same model, right? We call it the German model. If you have just a, a blackboard <laughs> and you have a lecturer who just writes on the blackboard for two hours, so my university is a, a technical university, and and that means it's a lot uh, be- better in some ways, right? We had this very simple structure of every module is four hours. It's two hours of lecturing in general, and then it's two hours of group work. So that means for every hour of lecture, you have an hour where you sit and solve problems with a TA. And you can't do that in philosophy or in psychology in the same way or in literature, right? You can't have group work exercises. But for a mathematician, it's perfect, right? You can just sit there and solve differential equations for two hours. And it's a great way to learn. So for me, I think that model worked quite well. But in Denmark, there's other educations where people are questioning this weird old school model a bit more, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, what I see, I mean, what is more and more a trend in, in education is obviously project-based learning mm-hmm. where, um, you know, uh, where I'm, I think it's again for younger kids, so not, not, um, not higher, higher education, but primary and secondary education where instead of, the teacher lecturing you know for eight hours a day students form groups and then they have to solve uh like a real world challenge for example let's say they have a i don't know like a <clears throat> like let's say okay co- come up with ways to make the air around the school cleaner so mm-hmm. they have to do research you know they have roles um they have to present they have to um like um learn learn more about discipline and, and project management so th- you know there also collaboration lies in the heart yeah um but 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 as you said it's it's not about collaboration per se but collaboration teaches all these other skills you know like what we call 21st century skills you know critical thinking um um, um you know uh, working in teams um creativity i think is super important um stuff like that so yeah um but you know one of the problems we see um um, when talking to teachers is that it's just super expensive to to do this so only like progressive schools or like elite schools can can um, afford to (laughs) have like a full project-based learning curriculum you know that's um it seems weird though right it seems like the the cheapest thing you can have right so i it's funny like i come from this technical university where 
you have different types of engineers, right? So I'm a mathematical engineer, and then we have like physicists and chemists and so on. And physics and chemistry and those kind of people are so expensive to have going around, right? Every course they have to take, they have to make concrete or they have to like fire high beam laser kind of things. Mathematicians, we just have to buy our own books and just sit and think a lot. And then we have TAs like everybody else, right? So like teaching staff is still the same price, but we don't have any other resources. And we have a lot of project-based learning in my in my degree, right? So it wouldn't be that far out maybe, but it would be kind of, hey, you have a machine learning course, make make something cool with machine learning, like solve a problem you care about, write a paper about it in groups. And we that was the best courses, right? Those were the ones you liked where you could do whatever and, and, and do something you really cared about. I remember the first one I had of that sort. I built a, I built a, a, a game that was about sailing a ship through iceberg terrain. And then I generated a lot of maps for it. And then I made an AI to navigate the ship and sail it around. <laughs> and it was so cool. Like, I really liked that project because I had to build this whole game of sailing a ship. And I spent way too much time on it and I got a good grade. But <laughs> it, was, it was so cheap for the teacher, right? They didn't have to do anything. They just had to tell yeah. me, build something cool. And that's, I was a university student. Of course, it's different if you have third graders, but... It doesn't yeah. have to be. You don't have to buy a 3D printer to be project-based, right? You can do it simpler, but I, I, I don't know. I've never taught that project-based myself, so maybe I'm just uh, being naive about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm also not a teacher, so, I mean, you're more a teacher than I am. But, um, the yeah, I have, so, you know, I think you can go cheap on project-based learning too, Um but, you know, where it gets really interesting, I think, um, at least that's what our teacher tells me <laughs> and she teaches um, high school physics, you know, um, and also cosmos school. But, you know, for example, they were spending that like a, like a robotics thing going on where students could build cool robots. And, you know, that's, that's cooler than just um, theoretically thinking how, how you could clean like the air mm. um, around the school for example you know it's because yeah. it's very hands-on and you still have to like build a robot um, that gets a certain task done and you know that's um, something that uh, was very expensive and only like a small number of students could join that special class because um, um, it was so expensive get to get all the equipment um, yeah yeah it makes yeah. sense um, but yeah, I guess there is, you know, there's cheap, cheaper versions and more elaborate, more expensive versions of it too. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about collaboration and um, the importance of it, um, how important is it to be in the same physical location, um, in your opinion? Like, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. Um... It's very interesting. It's something I've discussed many times with random strangers when when they have nothing to contribute. I just start this discussion because it's kind of a thought experiment for me. Like we today we're living in cities together, all of us, right? And that seems stupid. Like there's so much space in the on the earth that we could live in, but we kind of seem to aggregate together in these clusters of of people. And then uh, people say, yeah, sure, you could work remotely, but like Skype is kind of poor communication, right? It's hard to have a perfect conversation on Skype. And then I say, okay, so let's imagine a future where Skype is perfect. Would we still live together? 
would we still need to be close to each other? Let's imagine you have virtual reality, holographs, perfect connection, everything is great. Would you still need to be physically close? And most old school people are like, yeah, there's still some magic about it. I'm not so sure, right? I'm not so sure that's true. But the problem today is that um, when you talk to people, it's about, I have to transmit ideas from my head into yours and the other way around and so on. And it's extremely effective to be close to each other physically. Like talking and being next to each other in a meeting, five people is so much more great than being five people on Google Hangouts. I don't know why. It's a little bit about the bandwidth. There's like a millisecond delay sometimes and that ruins it. And it's hard to have a quick back and forth and people keep interrupting each other and so on. So communication seems to be extremely fragile and the brain is not very good at at Skyping and, and calling on the phone. So physical today is just significantly better than anything else, it seems, because of technology. And I believe we can solve that. And I believe we will solve it. And then I don't know. But today, I think being in the same physical location, it doesn't have any magic to it. It's just 10 times better for having a conversation than chatting or something. But it's also very annoying, right? It's very limiting. It's very expensive. It's very, yeah. I think if you could replicate the same feeling of being close digitally, I think it would be totally awesome, right? There's no need to be close in time zones, for example, anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, there's definitely like no one can deny that um, Skype and Google Hangouts, you know, they do suck. I mean, it's still better than not having those tools, but they are nowhere near being sitting in the same room. Like even us now, I'm in San Francisco, you're in Copenhagen, you know, we're recording this, um, we're on Skype and, you know, I guess just so different than people sit across me. It's, but it's still pretty cool, right? As you say, it's, it's kind of nice that we can do this and be in different parts of the world and, and do this live. But I think it's like, you know, there's about like speech recognition uh, technology, right? It's not very hard to get from zero to like 80%. It's a bit more tricky to get from like 80 to 90% in speech recognition, but getting from like 95 to 100% is almost impossible. But a speech recognition system that's 90% correct is useless. It has no value to anybody. Every 10th word is just wrong and you're going to hate it. A system that's 99% correct is awesome. Like it's extremely cool and it will save you so much time. And it doesn't matter if you go from zero to 9%, but going from 90 to 99 is like going from useless to fantastic. And I think the same is happening here, right? So it's, we're, we're getting up to the very high numbers here of like how good digital communication is, but we need to go further and it gets very, very hard now to improve it. We need like shape off a few milliseconds here and there, make VR work in cool ways, but it's going to take a while to get the last digits off, and I think, but it's going to be massively better whenever we do that. The spectrum of, you know, it starts with of like <laughs> writing letters uh, and then we had phones and then so we are here at like, you know, like 50% of 100%. If, 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 if you can look at the spectrum of um, yeah. 
let's say zero percent that one percent is like sending fire signals and hundred percent is sitting in the same room right mm -hmm. you're not talking about having a perfect skype where there's zero dot one milliseconds delay only and no interruptions that's not what you mean right no exactly i mean hundred okay, percent is yeah. like maybe hundred percent is beyond sitting in a room right there's like brain-to-brain -brain yeah. interface research where you can kind of think together or like transmit thoughts directly. That's also great, right? That's probably better than talking. Talking is already pretty broken, right? I have an idea in my head and then I have to construct this idea into a way, a form that I can talk. And then I have to send it to you with sound waves and you have to hear it and you have to reconstruct an idea in your head. And maybe it's the same idea, but maybe not. That's kind of broken, right? So that's maybe 100% is like thought to thought transfer between heads, but but that's 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 cool, right? That's that's futuristic. But let's just start by getting to where we are with physical communication. That's a that's a good place to go first. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um yeah, I mean that's that's crazy like, you know, um I I can't even like I'm curious if like if what I think would be instantly transferred to your brain, if I need to change the way I think about stuff, because sometimes, you know, like you think about stuff and then when I start talking, I will um, take a moment and like try to form it into like a concise sentence, <laughs> which in my head is not, or it feels like not a concise sentence in my head, but maybe it is already a concise sentence in my head. I don't know. <laughs> then um, it gets pretty spacey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. It does get spacey, um, but you know it's super interesting, and um, I'm super curious to see what kind of advances that there will be in that in that space. Um, but I really like the the concept of thinking um, of communication from you know zero to comparing it to speech recognition, which is only like one technology, you know, from zero to one, mm -hmm. uh, to, from zero to hundred percent. But like if we apply the same thinking to um, communication, it's it's like five or six different technologies along the way basically yeah where we get from fire science or smoke science to um um uh, brain machine interfaces you know it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment um so have you ever you know uh, and obviously like uh, virtual reality and like telepresence robots come in there somewhere mm -hmm. although i think we will just skip telepresence robots um i've been a telepresence robot twice it's actually a lot of fun but it's also pretty stupid <laughs> yeah i mean i guess you know you, you do get like the idea that there's someone in the room you can look at it and there's like an ipad stuck to the head but <laughs> it's a little bit like from like a like a you know like a mediocre sci-fi movie from the 50s or something yeah i feel like um and like kind of like <laughs> you know I, I think we'll just skip that and go straight to vr maybe sometimes ar or a combination of those um have you ever done like a meeting in virtual reality have you ever had that experience no i've only i've played some virtual reality games uh in new york i think there's like a virtual reality theme park kind of thing it's just a container full of headsets you can take on so i, I kind of played some vr games but and that was really fun. Some of them were pretty lame. Some of them were amazing. Um, <laughs> Do you remember which ones? Yeah, so there's there's two ones I remember. The rest are kind of stupid. But one of them is this famous uh, YouTube uh, video of like you have to walk on a plank far above a city. Oh. And then yeah. they made a real plank on the floor that you have to walk on. And you know you're on 
you're like five centimeters above the ground right but oh it really you can feel it in the stomach and then you really don't want to fall and it becomes super scary that was cool that was the first one i played when i got in and it gave you this impression that like okay vr can really it can really like it can trick your brain right it can really trick your mind in some way that's like non-intuitive you think like yeah yeah it's just a screen on your eyes but your brain is not that smart right and your brain is like whoa i'm falling so i think that was a good thing for me the other thing i played was hilarious it's um i think it's called a job simulator 2000 or something so it's this vr game where you have to like you're in the future and you have to learn about what in the past we had jobs and you have to play a job to see how it was like. So I chose office worker and I just, I had so much fun. So they had to kick me out after a while because another kid wanted to play or like a kid wanted to play. I was an adult, right? But I really <laughs> liked, you could make coffee and you could like uh, use your computer and like buy snacks from a vending machine. And <laughs> it was so good. I really liked that game. Yeah. That's a fun one. Um, do, do you own like a VR headset yourself, or I guess not? Unfortunately, not. I was actually we we're talking about it this morning for morning breakfast here on the Friday in the office. Uh, I kind of oh. want to buy one now. I mean, you should really like the. You should really get the Oculus Go. Yeah. Um, I think it's a. That's the best one. So, you know, it's like. Yeah, it's because it's um. So it's only three degrees of freedom instead of six degrees of freedom, which the like the rift or like the htc vive have um but you know you can for those you need like a high-end gaming pc you need to you have cables you need to connect it it's like a whole thing to set it up yeah um like even if you already have a high-end gaming pc you need to you know just like a high barrier to st start using your like oh, okay no i'm not going to use it because it's a you know it's a pain in the ass mm. um right now so um with the oculus go you can it's 200 bucks um you can just strap it on and then you know there you go it's like it's as easy as unlocking the screen of your smartphone okay you don't even have to press the button you just put it on your head and it starts <laughs> and um but but yeah you, you only have three degrees of freedom which in this context means um you know you don't have it doesn't basically know your position in the in in, in the room so only you you have rotation yeah the th three degrees of rotation um not no translation in the room okay in the physical room yeah it makes sense and um yeah it makes sense um but it's still you know there are a lot of cool games and it's great to watch a movie you can also watch movies together with other people um it's um you can you can um can i play the and, job you know, simulator it, no they don't have that job simulator <sighs> they have other uh, something similar uh a similar game it's it's not it's a similar concept i guess called um virtual virtual reality okay. and there you are i think some of the most fun games you are um the ai has taken over the world right and they need humans to um get um easy jobs done for them so you're like <laughs> you're like part you're a worker in like a human agency that lends out humans oh, to perfect. ai to get some work done I like it. and there's a bunch of mini games in there, but it's also a whole story because, um, you know, after a while, um, there's like a union and there's like a, some the opera of the humans and you try to take down the AI and stuff. That's perfect. So, this um, is my new, I, I always have a hard time coming up with wishes for my wish list and, and this one is, is going on there. Yeah, do it. I mean, it's like, it's almost a no brainer, like, um, with the price point, I think. And also 
no, next year in the spring. Oh no, this this year it's 2009. This year in the spring, um, the, the Oculus Quest is coming out, which will be a mobile headset, so um, the same as the Go, but mm -hmm. it has four cameras and it has six degrees of freedom. So what you get is you get the six degrees of freedom that you have only had with like the high-end headsets until now. You get it on mobile, so you can just strap it on, but it also tracks the location. Okay. You are in the room, so that's um, of course you know like the CPU and GPU are not as good as you would get like a high-end gaming PC, but it's good enough and you've got the tracking. So that that will also be pretty cool. And um, I actually tested that out at the Oculus Connect, that's the yearly Oculus conference mm -hmm. um, in September last year, and um, th that's you know that's uh, you know kind of like magical if you, the first time you try that so it's um um uh, it's crazy so there's some cool stuff coming in in the vr um space um this year nice. looking forward to it cool um so but kind of kind of derailed here um sorry i get always super excited talking about these things um yeah so so my my the point i wanted to make is basically um to get back to the communication if you do it in vr and you know in for example, in Cosmos School, um, there's always multiple people, like in the best case, around five students and a teacher in the same room. And what I mean room is like a forest where you <laughs> run experiments and build stuff um, together. And, you know, you're an avatar, like you're a, currently, you, you can just, you're a robot, like a cute robot, you can choose different colors, but, um, you know, so and then you see the other other robots and you see when they head turns and when their arm moves um and their eyes do blink now and then um but the point is sometimes we do meetings even though we're all here in san francisco when someone's in home office or something we do meetings in vr in cosmos and it already feels much better than doing a skype call because you actually feel the presence of the other person um, and you know you see how their head moves and their hands move um, and you know even though it's not like you don't get all the facial expressions or whatever of like uh, being in the same room communication but it still feels I think you know um, like a couple of times better than than just doing like a Skype call or a phone call so that's it's pretty cool so um, it's also something you can do when you get like an Oculus Go. You can like hang out with your friends and play chess or whatever. Then I'm so gonna call you fun. again and we'll uh, we'll do another round in virtual reality. Exactly, we'll do the next. Exactly, that's a great idea. We'll do that. Um, cool. So um, I quickly want to get back to the to the topic of um, you talked about um, um, you know MOOCs like. Um, uh, Udacity or Coursera, um, um, you said that later on with, with PeerGrade you might you might build a platform that kind of like combines some of those elements too. Um, so I want to get back to that to that topic and you know um, when MOOCs first started, I mean I don't know what the first one actually was, but the first one I noticed was I think Udacity. Um, you know it's all, probably almost like ten years ago or something now. Um, People were like, oh, MOOCs are going to replace universities. It's the next big thing in education. But if you look at the data now, you know, MOOCs have grown, and I think they have a tremendous impact on education. Um, 
but they didn't replace universities. Um, why not? Not yet, right? I'm not. I'm not a huge. Uh, I don't really know where I stand on this topic, right? So MOOCs have been around. Let's just say ten years, but universities have been around for a thousand. So I think it's fair to assume that they have more in them. I read this article yesterday about kind of MOOC. MOOC history, right? And and there's been kind of different levels or different. Uh, trends going on right in the beginning we had these very very big MOOCs like uh, Coursera's launch with Andrew Nee's uh, machine learning course and so on and then they started uh, making uh, more courses that were smaller and more live and more kind of on your own pace and then recently we've seen kind of these micro credential uh, micro courses where you take four different parts and then you get a, a small degree a nano degree I think they call it and now it seems like they're moving to the next level, which is unbundling it a bit more and then making longer degrees and actually going closer and closer to real accredited university degrees. And and that's where it starts to get relevant for universities to compare themselves to MOOCs, I think. But, 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 but. I think people are misunderstanding everything about education, right? So this is some scary thoughts about to come out of my mouth. But getting a university degree seems to be about learning but in many ways it's not about learning right if you wanted to learn something you can go online and learn it yourself that's that's just a fact like most information is available out there um going to a university especially a good university it's all about branding yourself right it's about getting credentials from a cool institution and a university like harvard is not better at teaching than many other schools are what they are is they're a great filter right it's very hard to get into Harvard. You have to be very smart to get into Harvard. And that means, or very rich or something, but it's, <laughs> you have to be good. And, 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 and that's just a, it has this weird effect that if you look at Harvard students, they're very smart, but not necessarily because Harvard made them smart. And that's what makes MOOCs slower to adapt than otherwise, right? It's not that they don't teach you the same skills. It's, they might not, but they might. It's just that if you come to me and I, I want to hire you and you say I'm from, I took a course on Coursera. Or if you come and say I, I went to Harvard, I just immediately know like, okay, to get into Harvard, you must be smart. So you're probably smart. If you come from Coursera, I'm like, I don't know how good you are. Like, I don't really trust your credentials. So for MOOCs to really replace universities, they have to become so good that they become a brand in themselves. And I think why Combinator has the same thing to it, right? Of course, Y Combinator is really great at making startups better. But the best thing about Y Combinator is that it's hard to get into Y Combinator. So it's a filter again. And the harder it is to get into Y Combinator, the more cool you look if you went through Y Combinator and the better Y Combinator looks and then they get better startups to apply. So it has this self-reinforcing loop. And that's that's why MOOCs aren't there yet. But I think they could, they, they could go there and replace universities or at least some of them. Because it's much cheaper, um, and if you can make universities ten times cheaper and as good, then there's probably a space in the market for you, right? So what are universities today? They're branding machines, and then they're convenience places, right? They make it convenient for you to get a degree. They help you study your courses. They help you read your books. They help you. They help tell you what to study in which order and remember to come in on Monday and stuff like that. But a lot of it, you could record the lectures, you could 
buy the books yourself. You could do a lot of those things on your own. And still people flock to universities, right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, so, and if you look at, if you look at um, primary and secondary education, why don't we have Udacity for high school? Why doesn't that exist? I think Udacity for high school could exist. I was actually about to start that company myself a long time ago, <laughs> but a lot of things happened and we ended up not doing it. Um, I think if you go much further down, of course, like the youngest age of users on peer grade is like eight years old, because if you get younger than that, you can't really type on a computer. So you can't really read. So it's very hard to use a digital peer feedback system. Um, but when you talk about learning, right, and we talk about universities, universities is not for learning. It's just a place you can sit and read your book. It's, it's like very provocative way to put it, right? But when you talk about very small kids, like pre-K, two-year-old, whatever, learning is super important, right? You can learn a lot in that age. And I think you don't want to just give kids iPads and hope for them to be super smart, right? I don't really believe that kind of digitalization of education. I think you can do a lot in higher ed. I think you can do a lot in high school, but the, the, the younger the kids become, the more tricky it becomes as well. Mm -hmm. But let's say, let's say middle school and high school, why, why isn't there more like, I mean, I guess there are some online slash homeschooling things going on, you know, but it's not really like a, a platform where you can just say, okay, you know what, instead of going to sending my kid to this high school, just get a degree from Udacity for high school.com. You know? yeah, I think it's two things, right? So one is coming back to communication and collaboration. It's still harder to collaborate on online. And when you're 12, it's very important to learn to collaborate. When you're 20, it's, you're supposed to have learned it already. Like you, There's still a lot to learn, but you're supposed to be on the next level now and about to learn physics and not like thinking and being a nice person so because that's very hard to teach online it's probably good to get kids to school when they're young where they can learn those skills effectively the other thing is people don't really trust technology i guess and like it's people are hard to change and politics and all those kind of things that even if you build a really good online middle school people would still go to the normal school because that's what they usually do so yeah I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's going to be very hard to get it to work. And do you think VR could change, could accelerate that change? Because people, once VR gets a little more mainstream and better, you really feel like you're in the same room with someone. And in that case, you can go back to teaching social skills and, and collaboration skills in VR. Maybe. It depends on VR. It depends on VR being successful, right? It's like hinting on that's an assumption you have to make before a school in VR makes sense, is that VR makes sense. So it's very easy to track progress, right? I kind of do the same with peer grade sometimes when I talk about like, what do we need to make peer grade a big business? And two things have to happen. People need to use peer feedback, and then we have to be the best tool to facilitate it digitally. And step number two in that plan is very easy for me to control. We can just build a really good tool. Step number one is super hard. I have to change the way the world teaches. That's very, that's very hard and it takes a long time. And it's, it's annoying to have a business sometimes that is hinting on a tremendous market change going on or the world changing. But 
it's also why how you can sometimes get in in first position when something does change i mean it's the story of my life right it's uh, also what we're kind of like assuming that vr will be big yeah um in the next couple of years and until then there's it's big enough so we can make a living um but the cool thing about that is of course if if the assumptions right then um then you know it's going to be then you, you you can potentially be huge and have a huge impact so that's the trade-off there yeah um but i like it it's it's, it's more it's not as boring <laughs> <laughs> as being in a already matured market i guess um okay so um let's see so i want to start wrapping up by um asking three questions and the the first one i plan to ask every guest and just get their take and then compare you know in five years <laughs> if that's true or not <laughs> um so how how big do you think will how how big do you think will the influence of VR in education be and why? Oh, it's very hard to say. So I read this paper recently about virtual reality today in some specific case of teaching, right? Where virtual reality was very good for getting people engaged and every student said they had a lot more fun and felt they were much better. And then when they got tested, they performed better if they just did a normal reading exercise or like a, a non-virtual reality version of it um which kind of leads me to this other thing about like students don't really know what they learn like how they learn students think all sorts of things about what good learning is and it's mostly wrong um which is kind of paradoxical that students should be the ones who know when learning is good so i think we're still in the days where it's very early to know about VR's influence on education. It I think the I think the question for me is like is VR going to be important at all or not at all? If it's going to be important at all, education is surely also going to improve a lot. If VR doesn't have any effect, it doesn't affect education either. I think that the bigger question for me is the VR in itself. And then you can just add education to that because I think education is the place that everything Every technology will impact education and also VR in a massive way if VR becomes a thing. Um, but VR may be more than other things, right? More than blockchain or some other scheme. Um, but but I think it's kind of like AI, right? If people ask me about AI and education, it's more about AI than about education. Sure. I mean... Yeah, maybe then the question is like, can it fundamentally, you know, change it? Like, you know, of course, like, um, kind of like AI will kind of like impact education, um, but like, will it fundamentally change it so that we won't have teachers and only AI that teaches people? Um, that would be like the question. I mean, don't answer it. It's not about AI. But... <laughs> no, but I, I understand you, and it's it's very hard to answer, right? Because the problem is that if you look at the oldest universities, they're from about year 1000. And it's almost the same way we teach today. It's been 1000 years and almost nothing has changed. That seems insane, right? And every technologist today will say, well, that's because the new technologies are much more awesome. 
and I'm a technology optimist, right? I believe that. But I also have like a, a skeptic voice in the back of my head in general saying like, eh, why would it change now? Like it's been the same for a thousand years. Why would this new thing be the thing that changes everything? Um, so that's like, education is very old school and it's very conservative and it's very hard to, to change, which is it's problematic, but it's also a strength of education, right? It's very hard to fall. It doesn't really fall into a weird fad and go off some tangent. It's kind of very stable. Um, I hope education will be influenced positively by VR. And I can come up with a lot of ideas and scenarios in my head for how it could happen. Um, will they happen? Oh, there's so many factors influencing that, right? There's so many possibilities for it not happening. But I, I think it's going to have a, a pretty good impact. I think it's going to have a decent impact. Um, it's going to be up there with the other technologies like AI and so on. It's exactly how, I don't know. I hope physicality is one of them, right? We talked about physical location. I don't think it has to matter as much as it does today. I and I think there's other things as well. Exactly what's going to happen, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, it's, hard to, it's hard to predict the future. And um, that's why I think I really like talking and discussing about it because because like different people have different views and it's interesting to try to understand why people think what they think. Um, interestingly, um, I watched a um, interview with Bill Gates, I think in the beginning of the 90s it was. Um, and he's talking to this kind of like interviewer and, you know, he, they talk about computers and he's like, you know, everyone's going to have a computer and it's going to change stuff we're gonna have multimedia you know the word multimedia is kind of like old school he says you can like watch videos on your computer and like it will change education because you don't have to read books you can just like watch it or listen to it and you know for him it was so obvious and for the interviewer um she didn't really she's like why do we need we have books they work perfectly fine why do we need to change that um and she's like it's just much better you know because computers and it's, I really like going back and watching these old videos, which we only have start to have right now because, because you know, because before, before <laughs> that was harder to record and preserve yeah. the recorded videos. But if you go back and watch some of the old Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or, um, yeah, also Elon Musk videos, it's, um, it's striking how kind of like they just saw it and, and some stuff they saw, some stuff they didn't. Um, he also talks about, um, um, that you know, um, um, uh, uh, how do you call uh, call that? Like recognition of handwriting will be super important. That yeah. that will be like the main input method, which of course didn't happen um, for some reason um, because keyboards work just better. Uh, yeah, and and that's okay. So that's actually another part of this, right? So the keyboard is a good example. The keyboard is also relatively old by now, right? And the question is like, can we make a better keyboard? One of my co-founders keep thinking about this. Can we make a better way to transmit my thoughts into the computer so he can program faster? And the question is, maybe you can, but maybe that's not the bottleneck. Maybe the keyboard isn't really your bottleneck. Maybe thinking is your bottleneck, right? Maybe coming up with ideas is the real bottleneck. And even if you had a faster keyboard, you would just pause and, and think. 
And maybe it's the same with education, right? This is a scary thought for any edtech person out there, but maybe the, the bottleneck is not our technology. Maybe the bottleneck is how fast kids can learn. Maybe we are at 95% now. And maybe reading is and lecturing is like 90%. And then we took 90 to 95 with peer grade and virtual reality and all sorts of things. And maybe we can get slightly better, but maybe there's just like a limitation on how fast people can learn things. So we can't, because there's this classical uh, quote about like things should be getting 10 times faster over a long time, right? And education takes longer and longer. So like what what's going on? Why isn't education getting faster? And maybe it's just because we can't learn more than we're already learning. I hope we can make it better, right? I really hope, but but it is an interesting thought experiment. No, I think I, you know, for me it's not about that in education that doesn't seem to me for me like the area with the lowest time or the area where there's the mo most potential for improvement. I think for me it's, um, it's more about um, the quality of education. So like the inequality in quality of education on a global scale, uh, access to education and the cost of education. So I think progress should be made there in education. And it has been, you know, it has been like stuff like Khan Academy is, uh, I mean, incredible. But there needs to be more, I guess. Um, so I feel like, I don't know, that's areas I want to see improved. I think you're right. I think you can definitely lift the bottom. Um, and it's not because technology itself is, is incredible necessarily. It's just because the people in some third world country don't necessarily have teachers that are educated. They don't have schools. They don't have books. They don't have the same availability of information. So if you just give them, you could probably get pretty far by giving them schools and books and teachers and all that, but that's very expensive. So maybe technology can make it cheaper to give, to give that accessibility to good education. And then maybe it's not as good, but maybe it's like 99% as good or 90% as good. But that's still pretty good if you have nothing today. So I, I, I understand your point. I think you're right. In the life of peer grade, what is the shittiest thing that has ever happened? Yeah, the shittiest moment in peer grade. Hmm. It's a good question. We've been around for a while. And I think the shittiest moment of peer grade is probably when we have to lay off somebody, right? That's extremely uncomfortable to me. I'm an introvert. I'm a mathematician. I, I'm not very happy about conflicts in general. And having to take a colleague who's also your friend into a room and tell them that they can't work with you anymore, that is heartbreaking. Like it's some people are very good at this and some people say, well, it's just a part of business. And it is right. It is part of business. But holy moly, it's not fun. And I remember the first time we had to fire somebody. We, it was me and, and our CTO who did it. It's a long time ago now, but we did it in the morning or something or in the, just before lunch or something. And he went home and then we also went home. We couldn't, we couldn't stay in, in the office anymore. We were so emotionally drained of energy that we just had to go home. I went home and I went to bed at 5 p.m. Like I, I couldn't, it's kind of like a big exam or something Like you feel this pain in your whole body. So that's that's the serious moment and we've had to do it a few times. And 
I don't know. That that's always that always sucks. Um, all, all other shitty moments have laid us seem to be okay in, in in retrospect right getting a no from an investor is annoying until you actually close the round and then you have your money then it all seems to, to not matter but but laying people off sits with me forever i think even if i can look back now and say it was the right decision it was still tough personally to to have to lay somebody off they might have to quit their old job to go and work for peer grade or something like that right it feels you feel like you have a, an obligation to them yeah, definitely. Um, especially in you know, like a small team where they're also friends usually, and then it's and especially if you lay the person off for not, you know, not not yeah. If they're idiots, then it's fine, right? Then I wouldn't have a problem firing them. But it's not. We don't really have that situation happen yet. It's mostly been like performance problems or stuff like that, or like reprioritizations, and and that's that's very hard. At least it means I'm not a psychopath, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the upside. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then just my final question would be, and I'm, you know, I don't know if the question makes sense, but we'll see. It's the first <laughs> first podcast, so the first episode. Um, um, it's uh, pertaining to Cosmos School. So currently our biggest challenge, I guess, like many companies is um, how do we find the, how do we reach the right target audience? Because that's what we're struggling with most, um, getting to the right target audience. We're looking at um, teenagers or parents of teenagers that um, um, in the best case already have like a VR headset and like VR and just you know, um, want to take a, a class on Cosmos School. Um, and so you as an experienced founder, what would your, is there a piece of advice that you could give us? Uh, yeah, so I haven't ever done anything similar in terms of VR or something. So you have a very specific uh, target group, I guess. Um, I think, I think it's about, I think for us, it was important to be our own first customers. And of course, you're not a middle school kid anymore. So it's hard to be your your actual first customer in some way, right? I think the most important thing is getting very close to the first customers and and listening to them a lot. You will quickly get to a point where you know more than your customers, hopefully. Um, but I feel like, especially our power users, I still learn a lot from them. So we try different things to get feedback. And, and sometimes we try to take 10 users that are new users into a room and then ask them questions. And we, when we are finished, we always feel like, ah, we knew all those things already. But then sometimes we, we spend two hours with some of our most engaged users and they can tell us so many things about our product that is super, super interesting because they understand it on another level than, than the average user does. So I think, and that's not an, a, that's a common advice, right? Like listen to your most engaged users, I think is very, very important. And it's something we think a lot about, not just averaging all the feedback we get, but but weighing it by the intensity of the user. Um, I think that's that's definitely important. And I think I read this blog post today actually about about listening to users in the right way. And I think it's about finding the people who would be very disappointed if your technology didn't exist. Like which users would be most disappointed 
if Cosmos School God no, like, didn't exist anymore, and then figure out who are those people. Is there a spe- specific type of student or parent or whatever that is more disappointed than others? Figure out what kind of person that is, and then build for them. And that it's uh, it, it depends on where you are on the stage and and kind of where which type of product you have. But overall, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, that's um, definitely something we're um, you know trying to do. Um, in our case, we don't have that many um, actual customers, so that's um, you know I mean still still better than nothing. But um, yeah, <laughs> but it's also it's not it's not easy, right? So for us, for example, I think if I did that, if I actually send out a survey today to all of our users and ask them. The question like how disappointed would you be if peer grade disappeared tomorrow my intuition is that the most disappointed people would be middle school and high school teachers that's my intuition right i might be wrong but that means okay then we should just build functionality for them right that's what i just said and then on the other hand most of our revenue and we need to make some money to stay alive as a company right most of our revenue is coming from higher education and, and corporates so do we just ignore the people who bring in the dough like we can't just do that right so it's about figuring out kind of how do you build a product that satisfies the right users but maybe the right users aren't the right customers and and that makes everything a lot more complicated right it might be for you in the early days that the people who would care most about cosmos schools live in a third world country and have no money that might be interesting long term, but it might also be very hard to make any money now if you have to send them VR headsets. So it's I think it's it's easy to be smart about rules of thumb, but I think it's also fair to assume that it doesn't always apply, and you have to make up your own adjustments to the rule. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I think that's a great um, closing. <laughs> closing um you know a word and um i just want to thank you for being on the podcast being my first guest and um looking forward to hear more about how pure great you know two comes along (laughs) yeah it's going to be amazing and yeah next one is going to be on uh, on my oculus uh, headset when i get that for, for my birthday exactly when's your birthday it's in july cool okay so i'm looking forward to that